and we're looking at verses 1 to 27 of chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Every, even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? O that my words were written, O that they were inscribed in a book, O that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here, and um, it's great that you could be here with us as we move through the series in Job. It's a blessing to be able to walk with you guys through this book over four weeks. Um, And as Jacob mentioned before, in many ways you think it is an odd choice to kind of go through uh, a book like, or a story like Job, a book of the Bible. Um, But at City Light we seek to teach the whole counsel of God because we believe that all of it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, And so we hope that even though it deals with heavy things, that it will be a blessing to you and a strengthening for your faith. And the section that we're in this week, which is the the second out of four, is the longest, this is the the largest amount of text that we're going to cover in a single week. And this one really is, is covering about 30 chapters, so almost three quarters of the book in one week. So we will be moving around a little bit, but I think you'll see as we kind of move through it that it is, even though it's covering a lot of ground and there is a lot of text that it is making one clear point. And if you think about it in the shape of the book of Job, it is is kind of odd the way it's set up. In the first two chapters, really even just the first chapter and then kind of ten sentences after that, basically all the story of the book of Job happens. All the plot points happen in that first little section. And then what we walk into now is an extended section of dialogue about what initially happened. And if you think about it, that's an odd kind of structure to it. 
Think about it like this. Most social events or even things that you go to have a way of signaling that they're about to finish. If you go to a reception, generally it's when the bride and groom leave the reception that everybody knows now is the time that you can kind of go. They, cut it, they do the tunnel or whatever it is and then they go through it and then everyone's like, now is the non-verbal cue that you can start to make your way out of the premises. When you go to a birthday party, it's usually after the, the birthday cake that it happens and then everyone leaves. If you're watching a movie, once the, the credits start to roll, you know that's time to go, right? There are just these cues that something is finished. It would be odd to go to a wedding reception and everyone kind of, they have the cake and speeches and whatever and they do the little hands thing and they go through and then suddenly a whole new set of speeches are rolled out and then more food comes out and another band comes out. If, if somebody did that, it's not, it's not impossible but it would, be, it would be unusual. If you went to a birthday party and they did the cake and everything and then they brought out a whole batch of food and more presents and all of that, it would feel weird. If you're watching a movie and the title's kind of rolled, and then a new scene came on that introduced a whole bunch of different plot points and gone, you'd be watching one of the Avengers series. It's, it's an oddity, but it happens. But generally, once something's resolved, it kind of wraps up. But in this story, it seems like almost the whole thing is wrapped up in the first two chapters, and then it keeps going. The story from the first week last week was this. The God says to Satan, look, look at my servant Job. There's none like him. He's upright, he's upstanding, he fears me, whatever. Satan says, no way. Job doesn't love you. Look, he's rich. He's got a big family. That's what he loves. Anyone would say they loved you if they had that life. And it's all taken away from Job. And Job, Job says, naked I came into the world. Naked I'll go out of it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan has proved wrong. God wins. Job is faithful. Why continue the story? I think the reason we continue the story is because what it's about to deal with is the aftermath of tragedy, which is grief. And it is often the case that these proportions are the same. In this book, there's about two chapters of plot and then 30 chapters of talking about it. From plot to dialogue ratio, that's kind of soap opera ratios in terms of like actual action and then people talking about what actually happened. But the reason it fits is because isn't that the same with tragedy? that things can happen in minutes or seconds that then are worked through over years or even with us all our life, that actually I think the proportions are quite right, that grief is often like this. It's not like a broken leg that you kind of, it's a problem and then once it's healed and fixed it's all better. It's more like a heart condition where it's treated once with surgery but then ongoing medication and constant monitoring and treatment and then maybe another surgery and so on over a lifetime. See, even though in the initial stages the volume of grief might be so loud that it consumes all of life, it often recedes into the background like traffic noise and every now and then it's kind of turned up by some or or another event. But it stays with us the whole time. And dealing with grief over a long period of time is a very different thing to dealing with a tragedy right in the moment. So what we saw last week was Job responding absolutely heroically to incredible tragedy. But now what we see is how he responds over time, long-suffering with the grief and tragedy that, that, that continues on. And so what this is going to teach us if we'll hear and learn is that in God there is hope enough to survive not only tragedy, but what comes after it. And so I'm going to pray that he would strengthen us to know that and to hear that as we look into Job chapters 2 to 30, uh, 31. Let's pray. 
Father, you are an everlasting and all-knowing God. You are not a God who has left us as orphans in the world, but you have given us your word and your spirit that we might know who you are and your will for our lives. Father, we pray that as we look at the story of Job, that we would take comfort and courage, knowing that in you there is enough to find hope in the midst of tragedy and even in the grief that follows. And Father, we pray that in doing this, you would be strengthening your church to glorify you in suffering. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, this, this section of the book indicates that what has happened to Job isn't just a moment but continues on. In chapter 7, Job says that like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hireling who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights are apportioned to me. So this has been going on for a long time. He's grieving over the loss of family, over the loss of property, everything that was taken away in that initial tragedy. But also his body has been affected with sores and disease, so he's in pain constantly. And he is suffering with these things and it's going on for a long time. And it is the case that struggling with, with kind of long suffering is different to dealing with a moment of tragedy. It is the case that there is a, a kind of a, a boredom that sets in and a difficulty that comes with that of going over the same things again and again. Whether it's an ongoing ailment or condition or whatever it is, there is a perseverance that's required to deal with pain over a long period of time. And so what we're starting to see in this book is how Job starts to wear under that kind of difficulty and under that kind of hardship. Because here Job is suffering both physically and from the grief of what's happened. He's dealing with both at the same time. And it's into this situation that three of his friends enter. And we pick up the story in Job 2, sentence 11, going through to 13. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they each came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and to condole him and comfort him. And when they saw him from afar, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. They rent their robes and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends arrive, and the places where they live are kind of mentioned, probably by, to mention that they came from a fair distance to meet him. They hear of the news of what's happened, and immediately they go to be with him physically in his suffering. Now this is a, a, a custom that's common in Eastern or Near Eastern cultures. One missionary, a guy called Nick Ripkin, uh, mentions uh, or, or retells the story of when he was in Nairobi in Kenya and he lost his only son. And an employee who had worked for him in Ethiopia got news of what had happened and arrived there the day before the funeral. He had made it either by walking or hitchhiking or on camel or however he could get there over five days to cover that much territory just to be there with his friend and he had no idea he was coming. He said at, the, at that moment, Omar's, Omar's gift of simply being there was an immense comfort. But this was a common sort of tradition, especially in the ancient Near East. You couldn't send an email or a letter or anything like that. If you heard of someone who was suffering and you needed to comfort them, the only way to do it was to physically be there. And so his three friends get this first part right. They hear of this incredible suffering of their friend Job, and they think the first thing we need to do is to go and to actually physically be there with him. 
And as an aside, I think this is helpful and instructive. That even in an age where it's easy to connect and even to comfort people via digital media, there isn't anything quite like being physically with someone in their difficulty. So his friends get this one bit right. They come and they sit with him. And we're told that they sit with him seven days and seven nights and they don't say anything. Now some have commented that this is the best thing that they do. Because when you hear them speak later, you're going to wish they would stop. But what they do now in sitting there in silence, they say, maybe that's instructive, that sometimes the best thing you can do with someone who's suffering is just to sit there quietly. And I think that is good advice, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what happens, if you look at the text, is when they see him, they can't even recognize him because he's so physically disfigured. And when they look at him... What they figure is that he is probably about to die and they start the ancient Near Eastern custom of mourning, of just sitting there in silence, waiting for him to die. And then what happens is that Job is the first to speak and it kicks off three cycles of dialogue. He has three friends because Hebrew writers love threes. So he has three friends and there are three cycles and they repeat. First Job will say something, then his friend Eliphaz responds, then Job will reply. Then Bildad responds, then Job replies, then Zophar responds, then Job replies, and then we go around again and again and again. And there are three cycles of this, each taking the same pattern and everyone taking their turn in speaking. And we'll get to why that's significant a little bit later. But the thing that kicks it all off after they've sat there for an entire week in complete silence, night and day, the thing that kicks the whole thing off is Job and what he says in chapter 3. Look at what he says in Job 3, 1 to 3. Job begins dealing with what's happening. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Almost the entire section of of chapter 3 is him carrying on on this same theme. He's despairing of life itself. Initially, he met tragedy with heroism. He was clear on who God was, on the truth about who God was and who he is before him. He declared, look, nothing I ever had was mine. God gave it to me, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But now, rather than that feeling like liberating truth, he starts to wonder if he's trapped by it. He starts to ask questions like, well, if this is what God does, if God gives only to take away again, then what's the point of my life? If the sum total is zero, why was I ever even born? And he's wrestling with the very despair of actually living. What is the point? I think there's something significant in this. And then I think in in reading this, this means one thing in particular. And it means that it is within the scope of of Christian experience of people who are godly, God-fearing people to actually get to the point where you despair of life itself. I need to to be careful in what I say there because I don't want to romanticize it. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's right in terms of the biblical hope that we have. But it is possible to be a godly, God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christian who experiences this kind of despair. It is dangerous to linger on these thoughts and it can lead to dangerous conclusions. These are not to be entertained as welcome house guests, these kind of thoughts. But I wonder if it is a comfort to know that just because you've ever thought that doesn't mean you're not saved or you're not a follower of Christ. That here, Job, a godly and good man, finds himself so pressed under suffering that he, he steps into this kind of despair. 
And it prompts a strong response, and what I'd say a pretty unsympathetic response, from the first of his friends, Eliphaz. After Job has said this, Eliphaz can't keep quiet anymore, and he speaks out. And in Job 4, 4 8, what we get is basically the, the central argument for all of Job's three friends. The way that they view the world and suffering and our place within it is outlined right here, and it repeats itself. And this is the constant tension between them and Job the entire time. In Job 4, 4-8, Eliphaz says this. He says, Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same." Eliphaz sees the world like this. He says, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and they happen in those proportions. As much as you are good and pursue what is right and good, good things will happen. As much as you are wicked and evil, so that will happen upon you. And looking here at his friend's suffering, he's implying, not implying, he goes on explicitly to say, you must be hiding some kind of sin. This is the reason why all of this is happening. But Job holds fast to his innocence. He knows the truth about who God is. He knows that he, like the others, is a sinner, but that his standing before God has been taken care of, that he is not suffering because he has done some extraordinary sin. This is not the reason it's all come upon him. In Job 6.10, it says, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And in Job 6.24, he says, Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have erred. He's saying to him, look, I I, I haven't misunderstood things here. It is the case that God is sovereign over all things, but it's also the case that people can suffer not because they've done some extraordinary sin to deserve it, that actually very wicked people get away with it, and some who have been good and kind and upright will suffer. And he holds fast to this. And it prompts Bildad then to go even stronger. The second friend, hearing this interaction between him and Eliphaz, almost can't stand it and has to weigh in. And in Job 8, 3 to 4, he says, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the power of their transgression. Bildad goes even lower. He says, The reason your kids have died is because they must have done something terrible to deserve it. And then going on from that, Job again holds fast and says, Look, in 9.22-24, it's all one. Therefore I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Job never surrenders his view that God is sovereign over this world, and yet wicked people can get away with things in this life, and good people can suffer incredibly. And then this prompts his third friend, Zophar, to jump in and to rebuke him even more harshly. But Job holds fast. Now at this point, you might be tempted to think, who are these people? I mean, who ever would see someone suffering this much and then come out swinging? No one would ever talk like that. But I wonder if whether or not it's the same for you that it is the case that sometimes we can find this way of thinking creeping into what we think and see. When I watch the news, 
and I see a story about something horrific that's happened, either consciously or subconsciously, I'm often looking for details as to why it is that that wouldn't happen to me. If someone has been king here in the city, I want to know, did they mouth off before it? Did they start the fight or something like that? Something that would indicate that maybe someone has brought this calamity on themselves. If something happens to someone's kids, you almost want to know that it was through some kind of irresponsible action or some kind of foolishness that actually led to it happening. I think we all do it. And in one book I was reading on grief, a woman detailed that when a friend of hers had a brother who died in a motorcycle accident, one of the questions asked initially from a friend was, how fast was he going? And you think, that, that's insane. Who would be that insanely insensitive? But I'm guessing they're asking because they wanted to know that somehow this person was responsible for what had happened, that this couldn't really happen to us. See, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar believe, want to desperately believe that if they're just good in this life, that they can protect themselves from bad things ever happening. And the more that Job pushes back on that, the more fearful they become and the more vicious they become in how they attack him. But all of us, in some part of our hearts, want to believe that this is the way the world works. It happens to a demographic that I don't belong to or a social class that I don't belong to or people who make the kind of decisions that I don't make. And yet here, Job stands against all of that. He is testimony to the fact that someone could be good and yet face incredible hardship and suffering. And so eventually, in arguing back and forth with them, eventually he just gives up on them. In 13.4, he says, you are you're worthless physicians. You've come with the purpose of helping and you're making things worse. Later on, he says, you are miserable comforters. You, you come to comfort me and instead you bring misery. And so the cycles go on, but Job gives up on his friends and their counsel. And so the question then would be, well, why do we have this long tract of three repeated cycles over and over and over again. Why, why, why make it so long? Well, I think over this cycle, we see two things. And this is typical of Hebrew writing. It's, it's subtle and it builds themes over a, long, over a long period of Scripture. And here, I think what we see, or not I think, what we do see, is that there are two worldviews at stake. One holds that God is sovereign and good over this world, that he gives and takes away, yet blessed be the name of the Lord. And the other says, well, good happens to good people and bad happens to bad people, so do good and good things will happen to you. And one of these worldviews holds up and one of them falls apart. So you, what you notice if you read it through is that over time, his friends start saying less and less and less. In fact, John Piper puts it this way in terms of the, the friends' arguments. He writes, when Bildad makes his last speech in chapter 25, he can only manage six little verses about the general sinfulness of man. And when it is finally Zophar's turn to round out the third cycle, he has nothing to say at all. The symmetry of the book is broken because the theology of Job's friends cannot sustain itself to the end. Their simple principle of justice has not been able to stand. Job is a good man, yet he suffers far worse than many wicked people. The correlation of wickedness and suffering in this world simply does not hold. The book, of, the book of Job is showing us that in the end, a weak worldview will not make it through the furnace of suffering. That a weak worldview that is simple and black and white and tit for tat is not going to be rich or deep enough to deal with the realities that we deal with in this world. And so his friends by the end have simply nothing to say. 
that their worldview just evaporates in front of them and there is nothing left to say. But the second thing that we see from this pattern is that the opposite is true of Job. That though he starts in utter despair, we see him slowly move out from despair and toward hopefulness in God. In Job 19, the passage that was read out right at the beginning of this, in Job 19, 25-27, Job declares, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. His eyes are still fixed on God, and though his friends have let him down, though he's lost every earthly thing, he makes one claim that he can stand upon, that he says, My Redeemer lives, and one day I shall see him in this life or the next. And the illusion here seems to suggest in meeting him beyond the grave. Though much of what the book of Job deals with talks very vaguely about what happens after death, here he seems to make some allusion to the fact that after death, sometime in this life or beyond, that he will stand before God and that that is his great hope. See, in this little section, it's almost as if there are two worldviews in the hospital ward and one gets sicker and dies and the other starts to grow healthy. The one starts to, over time, work through grief and to produce hope and the other caves. And so given that, at the conclusion of Job 31, what is it that we take away from this? In reading this, this long section, what is this there for? Why is it in Scripture for us? I would say the first thing to take away is this. You only, when, when it comes to suffering, you only have the theology that you bring with you. Nobody chooses when it is that any great suffering is going to come upon them. You don't get the, 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 you're not afforded the luxury of choosing when that happens. And when it does, you really only have the theology you brought with you. Think about it in terms of sailing. If you, if you head out to sea and a storm hits, at that point, you only have the supplies that you brought with you. Whatever you have in terms of emergency communications, in terms of the condition of your vessel, whatever it is, that's what you've got to work with once the storm hits. It's not a time when you can get more rations. It's not a time when you can really do very well at fixing up the boat. That generally, what you've got is what you have. And I think it's not exactly a one-for-one -one illustration, but I think in many ways, that's what it tends to be like when suffering hits. That you only have what you bring with you. Look, it's possible to cover new theological ground and ask big questions in the midst of suffering, but it's not very pleasant. I don't think it's the wisest way to go about it if there is a choice in it. It really should be the case that if afforded the opportunity, you would ask and wrestle with big theological questions about who God is, about his sovereignty over suffering and his goodness before that time comes. Job came into it with a clear understanding of who his God was and it was the one anchor that held him through the storm of grief as it came through. And though he wobbled and wavered, it was enough and his friends did not have that with them. Part of doing this series is that you might be in some small way equipped when it comes. When there is some suffering that you ought to deal with, that you won't have to at the same time have the double suffering of agonizing over these questions for the very first time in the midst of experiencing incredible pain or suffering. It is the case, I think, that generally... In the main, you only have the theology you bring with you. But the second point is, having said that, 
that no matter how ready you are, you are never ready. And I think that's what the book of Job is telling us. As a man, he was very much ready, theologically ready. He had a life and a pattern of obedience and following God wholeheartedly. But when suffering hit, he was despairing of life itself. It still knocked him about. The wise philosopher Mike Tyson said, uh, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. And it is the case, I think, with suffering that you could maybe even say everyone has a clear theology until they suffer. And it is helpful to come in with that so that you're not wrestling with new ideas in the midst of incredible suffering. But at the same time, it is the case that once it hits, we won't be ready for it in a way. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed that he wrote after uh, his wife passed away. And he wrote this on the same concept. He said, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood are a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a cliff edge. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? We can prepare as well as we would want to, but when the moment comes, in many ways we won't be ready for it. And it will knock us about. And it seems as well that the pattern tends to be what we see here in Job. That it's not, it's not for everyone, but most who I've seen, and in my own experience, what people tend to wrestle with in the midst of suffering is the same question over and over again. And it's usually not the existence of God, but it's whether or not that God who exists is actually good. And again, Lewis puts it this way in his book. He says, Not that I think I'm in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. The, the, the difficulty of suffering is not often that people would think, oh, at this point I realize that there is no God, but the question that seems to come up is, is God good? And this is what Job wrestles with. He doesn't ever doubt the fact that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The thing that he doubts is, is it good to live under a God like this? But over time, as he wobbles and wavers through his suffering, he comes to know and understand God with a new depth. And we'll see this more next week. And this again, leaning on Lewis's guide in, in, uh, in, in A Grief Observed, he observed the same pattern in his soul. As much as he wrestled and toed and froed about the goodness of God, what he discovered in the end was this. He says, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It had to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. The painful process that Job wrestles through as God breaks down and builds up a new and deeper understanding of who he is. And so we see that the two things we take away from Job's example is one, that you only have the theology you bring with you, and two, as ready as we can be, we'll never be totally ready. But there are a couple of side points that I think that we take from this as well. And I guess from the example of the, of the comforters and the terrible job that they did, we can learn what you are meant to do as a good and wise comforter. And the first thing I'd say that we take from this, and maybe this is one thing they kind of got right, was to show up. And Nancy Guthrie, 
uh, an author and writer who, who lost a, a child in an incredibly painful way, says that one of the key things about grief and one of the key things about a grieving person is that they need people to almost break down that barrier that suddenly is walled up between them and the rest of the world once tragedy hits. That really what is needed is, is if, you are, if you know someone who is suffering, you'll often doubt whether or not you should say something simply because you know you're not going to say the wisest or the best thing. Oftentimes in the face of grief, you feel like an idiot, like you have nothing profound or good to say. Everything sounds cliched or trite or useless. But people who have gone through things tend to say the same thing. It's that you just need to say something. Obviously not something reckless or foolish or whatever it is, but to say something to break down that divide. Again, in a grief observed, Lewis outlines this point in almost a funny way. He says, an odd byproduct of my loss is that I'm aware of being an embarrassment to everyone I meet. At work, at the club, in the street, I see people as they approach me, trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate it if they do, and if they don't. If you know someone is going through something, and you know what it is, then say something as soon as possible. Don't wait until the right time, it will never come. And saying something is almost always better than saying nothing. And that's the first point. And the second one then, is try as much as you can to say what is wise and biblical and careful. Be the opposite of Job's friends. They were reckless, their theology was immature, and they threw it around in careless ways. Be the opposite of those kind of friends. If someone is going through something that you have never experienced, be the friend who's going to read something or listen to something on that very issue that you might be able to speak wisely and biblically into it. They might not say something foolish that's going to prolong their suffering, but actually to speak wisely into it. Now, I know that kind of, that kind of almost goes against the last point, right? I was just say, say something, right? But I think initially you want to say something that's, that's initially comforting to acknowledge what has actually gone on. But as you begin to walk through suffering with a friend, to then think, how is it that I'm going to grow in wisdom and biblical counsel that I might share with them what's helpful? Be a friend who is not like these friends who just threw worse theology onto his suffering and made it more and more painful. Be a friend who would be wise and search the scriptures to do what is helpful. The third one then is this. Be slow to correct, this, be slow to correct the theology of a suffering soul. Over these 30 chapters almost, Job wavers in and out of despair and unbiblical despair and then back into hope. And he wobbles and wavers through this through the entire time. And I think this is common of the experience of genuine Christ followers who have gone through suffering. That they wobble and waver their way through it. And one of the frustrating things in reading this section in Job is that his friends are so quick to slap him back, even though they're not even right with where they're standing. And I think there's a warning here. that it, There may be the time in suffering where you need to correct wrong thinking in a friend who is suffering. But be slow to do it. And the reason for that is, sometimes people say something in the moment of suffering that, they don't, that really isn't a deep reflection of their truest beliefs. That grief and dealing with that can cause us to say things that we don't entirely mean. In the first few chapters of A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis toys with the idea that God is just a grand vivisector who is experimenting on us, his, his weak humans. But on reflecting on it later, he says, all that, all, 
uh, all that thought stuff about God as a cosmic sadist was not so much the expression of thought as of hatred. I was getting from it the only pleasure a man in anguish can get, the pleasure of hitting back. It was really just abuse, telling God what I thought of him. And of course, as in all abusive language, what I thought didn't mean what I thought true. That it can be the case in, in grief and anguish that we lash out and say things that aren't really a true reflection of our deepest beliefs. And a patient, comfortable walk alongside someone and know not to correct every twist and turn in their theology, but to wait and wait patiently. That it may just be something that's passing, it may be something that they're working through, or it may over time be something that you genuinely need to deal with. But I would say the principle here in being the opposite of Job's friends is to be slow to correct the theology of a suffering soul. And the last one would be this. The friends will let you down, but Christ will not. Remember hearing from Nancy Guthrie in a seminar, the, there was an odd pattern to, to suffering that she'd observed in her life and in others. And it was this, that often when tragedy struck, people who you thought were going to be there the whole way through suddenly went to ground. And people who you thought were in no way close friends came into the center. And she said, I don't know what it is. I don't know, I don't know where I see it biblically or anything like that. But she just said, this, this seems to be this pattern. It has this unique effect on friendships. And the sad thing about the suffering is that, it, that, that it's likely that that will happen. That some friendships that you hoped upon, depended upon, won't be there in that actual time. It happened to Job. In Job 19.14, he says, My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. He's left with these miserable comforters who are just harassing him day and night. It happened to Paul. Paul the Apostle, he says in the end of one of his letters in Timothy, it has no one left. He was in prison by himself. But most of all, it happened to Christ. Christ had 12 close friends, the 12 closest friends he had on the planet. One of them outright betrayed him under death, and the other 11 scattered. One of them, the team captain, even denied him three times. But more than that, when he went to the cross, he went to pay for our sin, and he was for the first time in all of history abandoned by his heavenly Father. He cried out to heaven for help, and the Father turned his face away. Christ was abandoned in a way that you and I never will be, if you are a follower of Jesus. When he cried out for God, he really was abandoned. When we cry out in suffering, it feels like God is far away, and yet he isn't. And yet when Christ cried out, he really was. That Christ faced hell on our behalf. It is the case that people might let you down, and yet God will never wander from you. And as we'll see through the book of Job, God is right there with Job all the way through to the end. And Job trusted in him, though he knew nothing of Jesus. He knew nothing of the true friend, the one who would never leave our side, the one who would never abandon or forsaken us, the one who sends the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to be with us. Though it might feel like we've been abandoned, it's not the truth, and certainly not the truth in the way it was for Jesus. Let me finish with the words of William Culper. He wrote a, a, a hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And I'll, I'll read it for you, the last couple of stanzas. He says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. 
Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's pray that it would be so. Father, we know that in many ways your ways are mysterious to us. As it says in your word, your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That were you even to explain your plans to us, our minds would not be deep enough to fathom them. And you call us yet to trust you. And we pray that we would trust you through tragedy and through grief, knowing that you have your purposes, knowing that you are good, that you give evil only enough rope to hang itself, and that you are working out your eternal plan according to your goodwill and pleasure. And Father, we pray that we would know in these times that because of Christ you have not abandoned us, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you have redeemed us from the pit and the grave, and that ultimately our hope and joy is in you. Though everything in this world may fade, we know that you alone stand firm. And so, Father, we pray that this would be our strength and our hope in the midst of difficulty and hardship and suffering. And Father, we pray that all of this would be for your glory and your church in their suffering. Amen. We're going to take a moment as we do each week to reflect and to think on these things. And then after that, Jacob's going to let us know what's going to happen next before we stand in worship and song.